Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast, the Dine and Duff edition. My name is Brent Whitmire. I'm an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, August 21st. It's been a tough week this week, trying to avert our eyes from the Mike Duffy trial. Stephen Harper is on the campaign trail, looking like he's about to lose it. There's also news here in Alberta. While oil dropped to a new six-year low this week, we have a new public survey on climate change. There's major concerns about Alberta's capabilities of providing lab services. We'll talk about that, plus Premier Rachel Notley's thoughts on another arena. As always in the press gallery, I promise we'll remain as neutral as possible about the Battle of Alberta. Here in the studio, before they reject the premise of my questions, we have city <laughs> columnist Paula Simons. I refuse to remain neutral about the Battle of Alberta, but <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. And Provincial Affairs reporter Mariam Ibrahim. Good morning. You all look fantastic. As long as we understand that the Battle of Alberta refers to the hockey and football and not, not the federal election. Right, right, yes. of course, yes. So and, and, you're, and you're staying neutral on that as no, well. No, well, no, but I, but, but, but I, I, I reject the premise of the idea that here at the Edmonton Journal we should be neutral on the issue of uh, of, of whether Calgary and Edmonton have better sports teams. I've actually uh, not known uh, Paula to be neutral on much. Um, anyways, we'll, we'll start with Duffy. Uh, an interesting week this week in the, that Ottawa courthouse where testimony and evidence uh, makes it look like contrary to what Stephen Harper said, uh, his chief of staff may have known more about that ninety thousand dollar check after all what struck you while watching this feeding frenzy well I can't take my eyes off of it I've been wasting lots of time that I'm supposed to be you know doing important research on things like LRT audits I think what's important for people out in the real world who do not perhaps share our obsessive fascination people are going to be wondering you know what difference does it make whether Ray Novak who was at the time principal secretary was in the room or not I mean who cares it wasn't his check it wasn't his decision the reason that Ray Novak's presence matters is because Novak is so close to Stephen mm -hmm. Harper. And Harper's own spokesperson said earlier this week that it's inconceivable that if Novak knew, he wouldn't have told the prime minister. The way in which people are pouncing on Benjamin Perrin's testimony isn't about the testimony per se. It's about what the testimony suggests about how close this conspiracy to hush up Mike Duffy reached to the Prime Minister's office and to the Prime Minister himself. And Novak has let it be known he did not know. He has said he didn't know mm. the payment had gone ahead. And now we're hearing he, in fact, did know. And, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, this is conflicting testimony from two lawyers sworn under oath. Nigel Wright testified that Ray Novak was not in the room and was not party to the conference call where the decision to offer Duffy the check was made. And Benjamin Perrin, who was the Prime Minister's legal advisor, uh, says that Novak was absolutely in the room and that he was sitting next to him and, and looking at Novak with shock, and he described Novak's facial responses. So they can't both be right. Mm -hmm. And they've both testified under oath, and they're both lawyers. So if one of them has been guilty of a terminological inexactitude, that's a criminal offense. So uh, it remains to be seen what the fallout of this will be. But it's hard to know. This is one of those things that's insider baseball for people who care passionately about politics and the minutiae of what goes on in the prime minister's office. This is intensely fascinating. Whether it's going to resonate with the larger electorate, I don't know. People who don't know who, you know, who wouldn't know Ray Novak or Ben Perrin if they rolled over them with an ATV, uh, do, they, <laughs> do they care? I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure that this will have as much impact on the election as those of us who are political junkies might think. You're, you're not alone in saying that. Uh, Coley Kosh in the National Post, for one, also asked that question of, you know, where is the scandal here? 
and it, it is sort of insider baseball. Uh, what, what do you think about Alberta voters? What about you, Graham? What do you think? The well, I, no, I, I think it shouldn't have been a scandal. You know, at the, at the very beginning, I think had just you know, paid off the money and that had been it. But because we're seeing so much going on behind the scenes with these emails coming out through the, the trial, you're, you're not seeing a government that's being forthright with the people, with the PMO's office, PMO being forthright with the public. It's all about um, hiding things. It's all about appearance. And you've got Duffy, of course, who doesn't look good in this whole thing at all. But when it comes down to the political implications, I agree with Paula. People really maybe aren't paying attention right now. They're on vacation still. It's August. The vacation is wrapping up. People are more interested in their barbecue or the lake or something like that than this. But it shouldn't have been a scandal. The scandal has been how the PMO tried to control this, how they tried to interfere in the Senate. Yes. And I, I think that they've made it an issue. Uh, will it make a difference to the election? I think if you don't like... Stephen Harper, this is going to um, put that in concrete. You really don't like this man. If you like Stephen Harper, you're going to say this is uh, much ado about nothing. But I think for those who are undecided, if this is still an issue a month or so from now, as we move into the actual final weeks of the campaign, um, this may be enough to cause Harper serious trouble in certain areas of the country. Because I think Graham is absolutely right. The thing that is, I think, in many ways more offensive than this whole issue of the $90,000 is that these emails from the PMO make it very, very clear that, you know, what, what Brent Rathgaber calls the boys in short pants, um, how much the PMO was dictating what the Senate was to do and not to do. And the Senate is supposed to be the chamber of sober second thought. It is supposed to provide scrutiny on the actions of the government. It is not supposed to be the puppet of the prime minister's office. And I think for people in the West who maybe care more about Senate reform than they care about, you know, what, what, whether Ray Novak was on a conference call or not, that's the thing that I think we should find disturbing. I mean, what is the point of the Senate if all it is is another tool of the prime minister? It is supposed to provide scrutiny over what happens in the House of Commons. It is supposed to provide a break on a runaway prime minister, should we have such a thing. Uh, and if the Senate has devolved to the point where unelected functionaries in the prime minister's office give senators, senior senators, their marching orders, then we have a much more serious problem than whether or not Mike Duffy overcharged for his per diem. And yeah. so you mentioned uh, Brent Rathgaber. He's written, he's of course the uh, independent yeah. member of parliament, the only person to actually voluntarily leave the Harper caucus to sit as an independent. He's in St. Albert running for re-election as an independent, has written some interesting blogs about this right yes, point. Yes, he had a great one this week. Yeah, and he's written about the, the idea that this shouldn't have been a scandal did handle it better at the beginning, and he's written about this becoming, sort of blowing up in their faces. It's their own fault. Um, it's interesting as well about Brent Rathgaber in terms of, uh, will something like this help him out? And I think if people are paying attention to St. Albert, I think this is another reason to vote for like maybe Brent Rathgaber as opposed to the, the conservative candidate. The last polls I've seen uh, say that there's, you know, six or seven seats in play in Alberta that could not go, that may not go conservative. Um, so you think there's any other ridings besides St. Albert that might... Well, there are definitely a couple of ridings that are going to be really interesting to watch, specifically in Edmonton, and in particular because Edmonton got two new ridings in the, the redrawing of the boundaries. And so, you know, Edmonton-Griesbaugh, for one, will likely be um, a tight race, or at least one to watch. There is a, a third-party advocacy organization called Lead Now that is sort of trying to organize Canadians into this strategic voting campaign, and they're they're trying to vote out conservatives. Uh, and they commissioned a poll, an environics uh, re research poll, 
poll of swing ridings across the country, and Edmonton Griesbach was one of them, and it showed that the NDP had a 16-point lead over the Conservative candidate in that riding. And that the really interesting number was that sort of when you when you compare the numbers from those specific polling areas to the 2011 race, the Conservative support has dropped by you know more than more than 20 points. How true that is, whether that uh, is sort of confirmed with further polls in the future, uh, and whether that momentum sort of maintains throughout this very long campaign, we don't know yet. But it is certainly, I thought that was certainly interesting. And I think part of the reason is there is no incumbent in that race in particular, and it's a new riding. And also, the NDP candidate, Janice Irwin, has been campaigning hard for a year. And and Kerry Diot, the conservative candidate, although he has a lot of public profile from his time as a newspaper columnist and a city councillor, is a very divisive figure. Well, let's switch back here to Alberta. And last week, Alberta Health Services canceled a $3 billion 15-year contract with the Australian uh, company Sonic. Miriam, why did the province drop this deal? When that announcement came down, uh, Health Minister Sarah Hoffman basically said that she wasn't convinced of the evidence, that she wanted to embark on uh, a new review that looked at the um, delivery of lab services across the province, not just here in Edmonton, where this deal was sort of going to uh, affect, and sort of look at how much of, of these services are being delivered privately versus publicly. That deal with Sonic would have sort of increased the level of private delivery of lab services in Edmonton by about 10%. And she said she wasn't, you know, necessarily comfortable with that and wanted to do a review and look at other options basically putting the brakes on a process that that began you know several years ago and one that was obviously that the NDP obviously criticized pretty heavily uh, while they were in opposition because they are as everybody knows big proponents of public delivery of public services including health care you know I don't know that anyone was really surprised I think even AHS CEO Vicky Kaminsky said no one should be surprised by by that decision. You know, uh, I think it was one of the ones that if we had to make a prediction on, it would have been pretty easy to, to pick. It's sort of a back to square one going to a review, and we're not really sure what's going to happen with it. And, and remember, too, that when Sonic was awarded that contract, there was a lot of controversy. Dynalife, which has the, uh, the contract now, howled and said the process was unfair. And indeed, when they went to an independent review, the answer came back that, yes, indeed, the, pro- you know, the process had been unfair. Uh, so, you know, there were questions at the time about whether or not the Conservatives had awarded that contract in good faith. The problem is that we need this lab and we need it sooner than later. And the longer we delay it, the longer we have problems, because right now we send some samples out of province for evaluation. Uh, I believe Dynalife, do they, it's in 2017 that they lose? They've got a, the their lease. main facility lease uh, is, is set to expire in 2017. I'm the main told, one in Edmonton. In Edmonton, sorry, yes. And so, um, you know, I'm told that they're trying to explore options or, or looking at moving to a new facility if they can. Um, the health minister told me in an interview that a lot of commercial space is coming open in the area. But, you know, part of the the previous deal was making sure that whatever new lab came up, it was close to the university, uh, close to sort of... Part of this is also in enhancing Alberta's, you know, the ability for Alberta to have these more, you know, sort of esoteric and more complex tests done in-house. And for that, you need more innovation, better better technology, a better facility. But I think, you know, as a winning political issue, the New Democrats may have the wrong end of this, because I think people in Alberta who care about public health care don't want to see private hospitals necessarily. But I think people are pretty agnostic about the issue of whether a private company does your blood work. Uh, And I think Dynalife, for most Edmontonians, if you need a blood test, you go to a Dynalife lab, you have a blood test. Uh, I don't think a lot of people sit there and agonize about the political philosophy of whether or not that Dynalife technician 
is working for the government or working for a private company. They're unionized. Obviously, this is this is pertinent this week where oil crashed down to $41 and some change. Money is tight here already in the province. There's also other moves that were sort of widely expected, including the climate change panel announced last week. They also put out a survey. Graham, you called this panel a high wire act. Did they already fall off with um, that survey? You know, I've, I'm really torn on this issue. I think the government is right to address the issue of climate change. They needed a strategy. How they're going to do this, I don't know. They're falling back on the same sort of tricks that the PCs used in terms of we will talk to all Albertans. All of you have a, a voice in this. And they put out this online survey, which, you know, is, is the problem. It's not scientific. It leads people in a certain direction. And it does, of course, say that climate change is a real problem. Uh, I'm glad that we've got politicians in charge who are actually admitting there's a real problem out there as opposed to paying lip service to it. But this panel, there's no scientists on the panel. It's all about sort of a show of hands as to what, we, what, what can we be doing towards climate change when it's a real problem. This is going to be done sometime in October. They've got the survey. They're going to be talking to the stakeholders. I hate that term. They'll be talking to the stakeholders. And they'll be coming up with some sort of uh, options to give to the government in October that they can then do a strategy to give to the premier in time for her to go to Paris. Um, it's such a huge problem. I, they have my sympathy <laughs> uh, because we are a fossil-producing province and they've got to reduce emissions somehow to show the world, in fact, we deserve to keep exploiting the oil sands. How they're going to do it, I don't know. I really wish we could just do away with these surveys. I mean, at, at some level, you have to ask yourself, what purpose does it serve? I mean, is and is it is that the best way of, of sort of projecting that those kinds of questions onto people it's it's like it does seem to create more problems for the government um than is than it's worth there's another survey out right now um on budget and it's just a box for you to write whatever you want i mean you know someone could sit at their computer and and write an entire email and send it in you know you know who who's going to read that? Who which poor civil servant gets to go through these emails of like people sitting at their computer? You know always anyone who's anyone supposing that somebody does. Well, that's my <laughs> point, right? I mean, is there are we is are people actually being paid to sit and read these submissions? And and if so, you know what is what's that? What is that yielding? Uh, you know, I at some level you gotta just question why these are even yeah. like, I mean, why I they mean, even I've exist. I've seen bad. I mean, bad city surveys on the arena. Bad city surveys on the Galleria. I mean, I mean. They play people for fools. I mean, they create the illusion that you have some impact on government when sometimes your opinion is stupid and nobody should listen to it. <laughs> um, and, or sometimes your opinion is is one, it may be however well thought out and well articulated, no, that, that government which has already made up its mind. I mean, do we, do any of us cherish the illusion that any of these, these uh, surveys actually you know, the, the politicians read the results and go, gosh, I guess we should change public policy because 45% of Albertans, I mean... It's well, and this is bah. not how public policy is, is created, right? And so, you know, I mean, it is, it's just, it, you know, at some level it begins to just look like a Well, if you a go stunt. back to the survey we had in the spring over the budget, under the Prentice budget, 69% told the government to raise corporate taxes. So even when you have a clear answer the government doesn't like, they then simply <laughs> reject it. And I'm not saying that the NDP was, will be as cynical. I think likely they will um, <laughs> when they get a result they don't like, uh, which is why very often these surveys are pushing a certain direction. Having said all that, though, 
the uniqueness, though, I think about climate change in the sense that you have people who still want to debate, is it real or not? Well, it's real. Uh, the government has to do something about it, especially when it comes to the reputation in Alberta. Over years, we've been targeted with the black-eyed, dirty oil, and Alberta has not done a good enough job explaining or showing it's actually going to be more serious on the environment. The NDP wants to be more, more, more serious on the environment. The problem is they don't know what to do. In opposition, they can very clearly say, this, the PC government is wrong, we'll do better. Okay, you're now in government, what are you going to do? And it's taking time, of course, they've only been in power for a few months, but they haven't got answers. And I think that they're still struggling on many of these issues, especially on climate change, because that's befuddled experts around the world, is we know it's a problem, now what do you do about it to reduce emissions significantly? And really nobody, especially in fossil-producing areas of the world, have an answer. You know, I mean, one of the stupidest things on the survey is that it prompts you often to suggest that what you really want is a tax credit that allows you to, you know, put weather stripping on your doors and better windows. Well, who's not going to want that? I mean, you know, we all want free money from the government to fix up our houses. Sure we do. But, but if people think that they can end, you know, the erosion of the Arctic ice cap with weather stripping, you know, it, it's delusional. So, I mean, I read that, and it wasn't an ideological reaction I had to it. I just thought, you know, sure, you'll get you'll get a response where people say, absolutely, I want a government credit to, you know, to put new shingles on my roof. I want a government credit for, for you know, blow-in insulation. But if we think that that is going to make one iota of difference to rising global temperatures, I mean, we're, we're dreaming in technicolor. So what, what frustrated me about that survey isn't that it presupposed that I believed in climate change. It's that the solutions that it offered were facile. Yeah. Uh, so, so moving on to something else that's facile. Edmontonians felt a little bit of deja vu this week when the Calgary Flames unveiled plans for a new arena project, essentially a bigger version of Edmonton's arena. Premier Notley seemed open, at least initially, to at least hear uh, Pres- Flames President Ken King. Uh, do you think this government can, at this time, even give them that? No. It's not happening. I Can mean, that's not going to happen. I mean, the problem is that they still, there's $32 million that Edmonton was expecting from the province that the province has never forked over. The only angle that Ken King and the Calgary Flames ownership group have to play is that where they want to put this new football stadium slash arena slash field house in Calgary is on top of a contaminated piece of land right on the banks of the Bow River where a creosote plant operated for years. The creosote plant's been gone for 50 years. The land has been, I mean, it's totally polluted and compromised and right on the river. So you can see maybe an argument that you could say to the province, can you help us with the reclamation costs? Well, I was going to say, and even, even um, you know, if they were going to entertain the idea of chipping in for the reclamation, Notley was out door knocking with Bob Hawksworth this week, the NDP candidate in the by-election in Calgary Foothills, and told a um, constituent there uh, who was talking to her about this issue that there's no precedent for the provincial government to take care of those costs and that it's a polluter pay system and that, you know, she, she really didn't seem to be as open to it as maybe they, they want people to think they are in Calgary agree right now because did I mention there there's a, a um, by-election? <laughs> See, that's the reason um, you're not, not, is not slamming the door on this right now. You go back to comments from them when they're in opposition and there's no way they were in favor of spending tax dollars on arenas and now they're in power and you're right, 
Paula. They're in the middle of a by-election campaign. So right now, they're not slamming the door on anything right now in Calgary, if it's remotely potentially popular. So it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week, we, we share something that we've enjoyed, some often but not always with a political connection. Miriam is is uh, fetching a Kleenex. So, Paula. <laughs> All right. I, I can't resist. I have to recommend the greatest police and political satire uh, of the summer, Andrew Coyne's remarkable column on poor Prime Minister Harper and how sad it must be for him to realize that everyone in his inner circle has been lying to him. Coyne wrote this piece of irony, let me stress, with a very straight face. And so one of the most amusing things is not just to read uh, the witty analysis of Andrew Coyne, but to read the comments underneath the column in which people say, (laughs) also, uh, Jonathan Swift did not believe that people should eat Irish babies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Graham. Um, I was going to talk about the, an article in the uh, Atlantic dealing with the media and Donald Trump. I'll do that maybe next week. Just this morning, I opened the paper, and we had a really interesting page on Uber, all kinds of facts and figures. Um, I must say, I've been sort of keeping one eye open on the Uber debate. I don't really pay attention to it. I had no idea how big it was. $5 billion in assets worldwide. It's a really good one-page synopsis with big numbers and little graphs and charts to explain what Uber is, what the problem is. And I, I thought it was fascinating. Of course, Uber is at one of the, these um, issues popping up uh, in our new social media internet age that where the authorities are still trying to catch up to it. And Miriam? My piece is Paul Wells in um, McLean's This Week. Uh, it's called Stephen Harper's Real Problem Goes Beyond Mike Duffy. And um, uh, it's Paul Wells in his usual uh, witty form. I encourage everyone to read it. It's, it's, a, it's a nice companion piece to Andrew Coins. Yes, he refers to, Wells refers to Ray Novak as the hitchhiker from the Twilight Zone. That You know, people think he's there, <laughs> but when you try to touch him, he disappears. <laughs> yeah. My good stuff this week is the September cover story from GQ, uh, Joel Lovell's portrait of Stephen Colbert. I find Colbert really interesting because he's not just one of the political, best political satirists out there. He's a, a devout Catholic who teaches Sunday school. Uh, journalists tend to see religion as a form of politics, and Colbert has other things to say, uh, stuff about suffering, about joy, about tragedy. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or at the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out our Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Graham, and Miriam for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week when we'll talk about Red Deer's new arena proposal. I'd just like to say this is the 100th edition of yes. the press gallery. Yes. And so I think we should just thank... Take a moment. Take a moment to thank, thank Sarah O'Donnell, our founding producer. The visionary and, behind yes. the press gallery. And, 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 and the all listeners. Of you, thank yeah. all of you, our listeners. Graham, always thinking about the listeners. And the viewers, we're actually... <laughs> <laughs> the viewers and listeners. People have actually have stopped me on the street to say how much they enjoy the podcast. Oh, I'm almost finding... It's always a pleasant surprise, so thank you for listening and watching. And a hundred more to come. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.